I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On this Hawaiian Shirt Friday edition of Breitbart News Daily, we open with a discussion of Pete Buttigieg Edge Edge's absurd suggestion that we can't get the Keystone XL pipeline going despite the Russia-Ukraine war because, quote, we are not galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems, close quote. An absurd statement from an absurd individual, but it also reveals how determined the Democrats are to keep your gas prices soaring while they continue to enrich the Russian oligarchs. Equally absurd, however, is the American and Western lefts escalating their cancel culture tactics to punish the Russian people for being Russian people. Not only are we supposed to get loaded on Tito's or Belvedere this weekend and not Jewel of Russia vodka, we also can't listen to Ruski Sopranos or read Russian literature or something. This is not helpful in the fight against communism and totalitarianism or against Putin himself. It's just punishing the Russian people and making Westerners seem like imbeciles. Needless to say, China and Xi Jinping must be laughing their asses off. Plus, the media is insisting Kintanji Brown Jackson and Clarence Thomas are similar. They're not. We give you the latest on the ISIS bride who got paid off after an affair with a Republican congressman. And we give you the shocking data on how much more seriously our political elite take the Ukraine-Russian border than the U.S.-Mexico border. As we learned in Tuesday's State of the Union address, Big Joey Biden truly is the champion of the Iranian people. Three guests today as we continue our week celebrating the life of Andrew Breitbart, his good friend and mine, Ann Coulter, talks about hanging out with Andrew and Matt Drudge over the years, plus we get her take on the news. Then musician, singer, and songwriter John Andrasik reflects on his deep friendship with Andrew. And finally, two-time Miss Olympia Erin Stern makes her maiden voyage on the show. She gives the audience some free health and fitness tips and explains why she thinks it's important to be vocal on social media about your political and philosophical worldview. We wholeheartedly agree. All of that ahead, but first, a word from our sponsors. I do want to get into something that is one of my favorite slash least favorite topics, which is Pete Buttigieg, edge, 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 who is the transportation secretary, who has uh, offered up a explanation for why the United States is not drilling. Well, they don't want permanent solutions to a temporary problem, which is the war that we are seeing break out between Russia and Ukraine, because, hey, why would you want to actually have our own oil being pumped when we could just continue to buy $70 million worth of Russian oil? And this is the sort of thing that drives me absolutely nuts about the way the world works is that you can have a, at the same time, you can have the United States buy $70 million worth of Russian oil, but at the Metropolitan Opera, if you're a Russian soprano, good luck finding a gig at the Metropolitan Opera uh, if you're a Russian right now. This is not even a joke. I've mentioned this last couple of days on the show how there are these like light boycotts or whatever of Russian vodka as if that's going to do some sort of big damage to the business of the Ruskies and Vladimir Putin, even though it just in effect punishes businesses who might not even be Russian. And even if they are Russian, they might not necessarily be supportive of Vladimir Putin invading other countries. Yet yeah, that is whatever the, the posture that we've taken 
In the meantime, of course, we don't behave anything like that when it comes to China. We continue to buy made in plastic, made plastic made crap from China that is made in China, uh, despite their genocides, despite their racism, discrimination, anti-free speech rhetoric, oligarchical behavior. It's not offensive if the Chinese are doing it for whatever reason, because I guess we're making more money off that. But in the United States, should you decide that you want to consume a product made by the Russians, the Russian people, whether or not you know if they are supportive of Putin or not, uh, it is something that is unfortunately stupid. And it, it reflects, I think, very poorly on our ability to think through the toughest issues of the day. But there's a soprano named Netrebeko, um, uh, who is supposed to be at the New York City Metropolitan Opera, but she won't be. Why? Well, because of the, the because of the fact that you know she's, uh, I, I I guess, uh, supporting Putin or something. This is something that is I don't care about what my artists, who I support, what their political positions are, and I learned this when I was a child, and I mentioned this briefly in the show yesterday. When I grew up, I was a sports fan, and none of the best athletes that I cared about were great people in real life. Uh, I will give you my favorite, my heroes growing up, Barry Bonds, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods. And I watched all of them have these falls from grace for various reasons. And I learned, huh, just because someone's really good at one thing, then doesn't necessarily mean they're of high moral character. So the joke that I was sharing with everyone in the Breitbart newsroom yesterday is that uh, traditionally, the I, I grew up, I played the violin. I was in the symphonies. And as a music minor at UC Berkeley, which is often comes up from time to time on the show, mostly as a bit of trivia, literally trivia. When you look at the word trivia, Marlo was a music minor at Berkeley, is the perfect example, example of what is trivia. And when I was a music minor, I had I, I loved romantic violin concertos. Romantic period is a period after the classical period, which was after the Baroque period, which was after the Renaissance period. Uh, and the romantic violin concertos, I concerti. So that's the plural in Italian. Uh, I think that's some of the highest art we've ever seen in the history of the planet. And my favorite was always the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, which was one that the critics did not like. Critics thought it was too chaotic at the time when it came out. I believe Tchaikovsky himself was a homosexual. So I take that as people who think that uh, Breitbart some sort of a discriminatory organization. Um, and that was always my favorite, even though the critics traditionally loved the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, which I also love, but I think is slightly inferior to the Tchaikovsky personally. So yesterday I was thinking about it. I was thinking Tchaikovsky's a Russian guy. Mendelssohn wasn't. So because Putin invaded Ukraine, I think now I am upgrading the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, and that will now be my favorite. You know why? Because 150 years ago, Tchaikovsky was Russian, and that should not be honored now. One school is not uh, teaching uh, Fedor Dostoevsky. The, this is not a joke. So one of the greatest writers of, of all time, got canceled because Putin invaded Ukraine now. Do you think this convinces people Putin's a bad guy or does this convince people we're all uh, total morons, morally? We're going to we're gonna punish Dostoevsky and the students who would have read him because Putin invaded Ukraine now. And I say this without a single nice thing to say about Vladimir Putin. Other than that, he seems smarter than Joe Biden. I'll, I'll say that. Other than that, I don't like him. Communist, oligarch, totalitarian. Uh, so I have nothing but negative things to say aside from what? Smarter than Joe. He's smarter than Joe. Like, let's be honest. But who isn't? It's the, I don't think anyone listening to the show today is a, 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 
Um, if you're listening to the show, you're, the chances you have a fastball that is uh, coming in at over 75 miles an hour is much higher than Joey the Biden has, mentally speaking. He's the type of guy who's cutting a $10 billion check to build the border wall, but at Ukraine. I guess not a wall, just the border itself. So he's got $10 billion for the Ukrainian border, and I think he's spending $6 million a day to keep the U.S. border wall stalled out. So we're paying way, 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 way more on the Ukrainian border than on the American border right now because the people in the United States, for whatever reason, we don't deserve a border, but the people of Ukraine do. Why is that? It's votes. It's purely about votes. Purely politics. He is a, uh, he is a politician the same way Pete Buttigieg, when he's asked why we're not drilling right now, when we know that's making Russia stronger, the fact that we won't drill. We have this goofy photo of Pete on the front page of Breitbart, and I asked for one of our artistes to recut the photo. Pete's uh, doing a press conference, and he's shrugging. He looks very boyish, like a small child, which he is. And I asked to recut it so that they're hovering little images of Greta Thunberg, Al Gore, Xi Jinping, all the people who like when the United States doesn't drill. But what is the alternative to us drilling? Is it that we get no energy at all? Or is the alternative to us drilling that we buy oil from other places like Russia, which we're doing now? Is it that the price of a tank of gas goes up? Of course it is. And why? Because we don't want Greta mad at us. We don't want Al Gore mad at us. We don't want AOC mad at us. Because you know, if we drill, then she could be so upset. I mean, she could fire off a nasty tweet Joe Biden about how the United States is capable of so much more. This is the behavior of a nation that is in decline. It is. And that's why I do believe that though I enjoy coming into the show and having a good time, I enjoy coming into the show and having fun, particularly on Hawaiian Shirt Friday, where if you can demonstrate to producers Paul and Greg, oh, Paul's not here, Haley and Greg. See, that, that, that's when you feel you're the, the record skipping. You're wondering if you hadn't had enough coffee to consume before the broadcast. That's what commercial breaks are for, ladies and gentlemen. But when you look at a nation that responds to a war breaking out with an oil-rich nation invading another nation, and then saying that the smaller nation, the oil-rich nation wants to take over, is in fact the Nazis. The small nation, run by a Jew, by the way, is actually the Nazi nation. And our reaction is, well, let's put up a blue and white flag on our social media page but continue to buy oil from the oil rich nation that did the invading it shows we're absolutely bat guano insane and that discourages me and it's not that fun that's in fact the opposite of fun it's disturbing and it's not just disturbing because i have young children it's disturbing just in a general sense you know i like to think that my young children will grow up in a nation that isn't totally nuts Though after watching the way we dealt with masks, uh, I'm not holding my breath for that. But I would like to think we could think through this one. Uh, Stephanie Rule is the anchor on MSNBC who was hosting a show on Wednesday. I think she was hosting for the 11th Hour show, I think was what it was on, which was the one that uh, I think uh, Brian Williams used to host. And she is someone who is uh, not a creature of the right, but occasionally asks a decent question. And she comments on how the Biden administration is releasing some strategic oil reserves, but we don't know exactly how much, and she refers to it as a drop in the bucket, which is correct. 
And she says, I know it's controversial and it has a huge environmental impact. So she acknowledges that. But could the president possibly consider authorizing the Keystone Pipeline or working something out with Iran? The Iran part's totally unnecessary, but I like the Keystone Pipeline part. And Pete, but edge, 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 edge. Well, why stop it too? You could go with four. Says, look, the president, I like the look, that's good stuff. Look, the president has said that all options are on the table, which means nothing. But we also need to make sure that we are not galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems. So the war that's broken out halfway around the world, which has a non-zero chance of turning nuclear. Let's not forget that. I haven't dwelt on it on the show because it seems sort of remote and I don't like to cause alarm uh, when things are pretty remote. Maybe that makes me an unlikely person to you know, have a talk radio show and be in the news business, but I don't like to cause alarm. But he says that we are galloping. Nice word. Is he is he a genius or is he not a genius? Because people act like he's a genius and he pulls out these words like galloping and totally inappropriate, like a horse. So we're galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems. We're more strategic and tactical actions in the short term that can make a difference. Like what you have with the strategic reserve, which exists partly in order to respond to situations like this. Okay, that part is true. Yes, that is partially why we have strategic reserves. But it's interesting the last time we tapped strategic reserves, why? Gas prices went up. We didn't tap them because we needed to tap them because of a war that perhaps cuts off a oil-rich nation from feeding the United States or makes it so that maybe the United States doesn't want that oil or it's risky or it's not dependable. I mean, that actually is why we have the strategic reserve. So he's correct on that. It just reminds you the last time Biden tapped it that it was only tapped because Biden's poll numbers were declining. It is a very interesting moment where we are watching at the same time the Biden administration start getting behaving sane in some ways, but in other ways behaving even more insane than in the past. Because remember, Big Joey now all of a sudden wants to fund the police. Of course, all solutions have to come from U.S. spending. And he uh, wants to support the Ukrainian people, which remember, he doesn't like Ukraine because Zelensky came in on anti-corruption agenda that cut off a lot of these oligarchs from feeding money to the Biden family to hopefully curry favor. And Zelensky himself, I'm not acting as though he is purely, uh, he's pure here. I'm not, I never have. But he is, he is someone who, again, I think he's stashing money places. And, you know, he's a media manipulator. But I think overall, he's doing the right things in this particular situation. I think he's standing up on behalf of his people. I think that he is pro-democracy, at least relative to the rest of the oligarchs in the region. And I think he's shown a lot of spine. And that's part of why I think Ukraine's fighting back at a pretty robust level. Uh, Not to say that the long-term prospects are great for Ukraine compared to Russian aggression. This is a lot of the uh, obsession overnight. Was Russia attacking a Ukraine nuclear plant? This is not the first one. So they're trying to take over the uh, uh, nuclear power plants. This is a pretty scary strategy. We're tapping our strategic reserve, which is not a bad move, but I do think that a better move would be get that keystone going. But hey, why would we want a permanent solution? Like more American jobs, cheaper American energy, cheaper American gas prices. So this is where you have to wonder if the politics 
uh, that is driving the Democrat Party has overwhelmed common sense to the point of no return. Because you would think any sane Democrat right now would say, hey, it is time, let's drill. Drill, baby, drill. Joe Biden's also funding military equipment such as weaponry, Stinger missiles in particular. Go to the Ukrainian people. I like this move, but why wasn't it done a week and a half ago? We have a exclusive that Christina Wong has for us, Breitbart News, who interviewed Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida, who made this exact point. Singers didn't start arriving until about a week ago, he says. They should have had them. They should have had them on day one. Those things should have been shooting up from Kiev, from the border. He's so right on this. So even when Biden gets one right, he gets one late. And this is a big contrast to President Trump, because President Trump at least was able to set an agenda moving forward. And you all know that I'm not, um, I get criticized by some of you, though I don't care about this. But I do get criticized by some of you for not being a sufficiently pro-Trump, though I, of course, have voted for Trump twice and enthusiastically told everyone in my life to vote for Trump. Um, but uh, some of you don't like that I occasionally criticize him from time to time. But one thing that he did do is he did set his own agenda. When he wanted to send someone weapons, he wasn't waiting for the press's permission. Uh, and I, don't, I do think that this is a point that is worth bringing up over and over again because Joe Biden does seem to be totally reactionary. He seems to be only reacting to what is in the polls, what is in the news. And you can't have a American administration that way. I understand maybe you can have a, uh, I don't know, you can run your, your uh, some sort of a club that you're in, maybe even some sort of a city government. But you can't have the United States of America where you're waiting for popular opinion before you make pretty obvious moves. And that is precisely what Joe Biden has done for his career is that he is someone who is waiting to see where the tea leaves are, seeing where the wind blows. And then all of a sudden he'll start declaring things like he wants to have a buy American policy after a lifetime of trying to outsource all of our goods and our jobs overseas, which is his new move. He wants now, not only he's proclaimed yesterday that he thinks one of the solutions to taking on Putin is not drill baby drill. He thinks one of the solutions is reducing our reliance on oil to punish Putin. He wants the whole world to, you know, buy Teslas, I guess. That will take it to Putin. Did you guys see this? They never miss an opportunity on the left to try to push their agenda when their key stuff is comes up. And one of the key items that is front and center, just about every Democrat on planet Earth, is to have a, um, is to have a green agenda, to have an environmentalist agenda. A couple other topics that I want to throw out there for your consideration. Bill Gates had developed nuclear reactors that helped China overtake the U.S. military. This was one of the revelations in Peter Schweitzer's book, Red Handed. Number one book in the country still. Peter spends a lot of time on this in the book, but one of the most disturbing episodes, John Hayward writes for us at Breitbart, is the relationship between Bill Gates and Xi Jinping, where Bill Gates stepped outside of the realm of personal computers to help the Chinese improve their nuclear reactors. 2011, after a decade of alternately predicting China would never be able to police the internet and then helping communist officials do exactly that, a company called TerraPower that was co-founded by Gates began working with the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation, CNNC, on the next generation reactor. The project was ostensibly civilian in nature, although Schweitzer notes the CNNC also worked for the Chinese military. 
in the molten salt reactors TerraPower developed just happened to be incredibly effective at propelling ships at sea, including military vessels. This is where the uh, people are rightfully saying it's absurd that we are referring to merely Russians as oligarchs. What about all of our oligarchs here in the United States? What about all the oligarchs who are operating in Europe, run the EU, run the UN? What about the oligarchs who run China? All oligarchs. And they're not just oligarchs um, in the sense that they have you know, some sort of a traditional long-held power. They're, they're oligarchs, some of them, partially because we choose to enshrine them with more power. That's why these people need to be opposed vigorously. Vigorously. So what do we do with the oligarchs in Russia? Well, our answer has been to cancel access to wrestling, video games. Are we nuts? A Harvard Law student announced John, Carly, uh, John Carney writes for us at Breitbart via LinkedIn that he was quitting his position as a summer intern to prestigious law firm in protest over the firm's refusal to shutter its Moscow office. What a leader. To all firms that think it's acceptable to continue operating in Russia, this is my message. Russia is a pariah state, not your emerging market. Your pro bono programs and equality initiatives will wash away the stain of working for war criminals, the budding Harvard lawyer intoned. Now do China, please. Like, can, can we at least do China? If you're going to penalize Russian businesses, well, can we at least penalize Chinese businesses? Am I taking crazy pills? couple other noteworthy items. The media is doing this thing where they're trying to compare Kintanji Brown-Jackson to Clarence Thomas. We have a big piece from Mark Paoletta, who was one of the top lawyers in the Trump White House, respected guy, who breaks down in great detail why this is an absurd comparison. Clarence Thomas is a giant. Kintanji Brown-Jackson is a affirmative action pick elevated by Joe Biden even though her decisions get rout get routinely overturned at a higher than average rate. We have not had transparency about her. Tucker's call for her to release her LSAC scores. I would love to see him. I think you should have total transparency on this because we should not have the Supreme Court of the United States be about skin tone and genitals. Hey, he or she might not be the best, but he or she has the preferred genitals that we're looking for right now. Those are some of the finest genitals available for the Supreme Court. Can you imagine being reduced to that? That is exactly what's happening right now. Oh boy, the hue of this person's skin is exactly the tone I was looking for when I was trying to evaluate their brain. The, the ridiculousness of this. But that's exactly the position of Big Joey the Biden who's translucent. He's so white you can almost see through him. If you get him wet, you can actually look straight through Big Joe Biden. That's how white he is. And now he's all of a sudden, after calling black children roaches as uh, recently as four or five years ago, uh, the guy who said that busing would create a racial jungle and he wants kids to be a part of it. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to cure us of our racism by appointing someone specifically due to their skin tone and uh, what's in their underpants. So because of this, I would like to think that Kintanji Brown Jackson would like to release all the information necessary to convince people that that isn't why she was chosen. That she was chosen because she's a, a intellectual giant on the order of Clarence Thomas, who's been a leader on the Supreme Court for decades. 
So anyone who's comparing her to Clarence Thomas is a, uh, a, is a moron, truly. And another person who's reducing people merely to skin tone. Clarence Thomas was chosen because he's one of the best and he's proven himself day after day after day. And Joe Biden led the high-tech lynching with, with Ted Kennedy to try to not just keep him off the Supreme Court, but try to destroy his life over what? Didn't agree with Big Joey on political positions. We have to put an end to this if America is going to survive. Of course, if America is going to, to thrive, but America is going to survive, then uh, we absolutely need to stop behaving in this way. We cannot do it because we're behaving like insane people, like stupid people. And we teach ourselves to be stupid. Following the Big Joeys, following the Stacey Abrams, who said the uh, Democrats' voting rights uh, push right now is like what's happening in Ukraine. This is a war on democracy. We have a war on democracy here because we don't want Stacey Abrams to drop a bunch of drop boxes throughout all of our cities. Now supporting people with the highest court in the land because of their skin tone and body parts. We're not behaving as though we are a society that wants to continue. Oh, sorry. I mean, I wish it was a fun show, which was a fun place for me to start the show today. But when we were funding the Ukrainian border, far more than we we're funding our own border, you're not serious people who are leading us. And if you're like me, you can't wait to get to the polls. You cannot wait to go vote. We'll be right back. One of the most compelling and important voices in conservative media over the last couple of decades is Ann Coulter, and Ann has just got a eye for talent, and she was friends with Andrew Breitbart long before Andrew Breitbart was the Andrew Breitbart that we all know and love, and uh, she's got a lot of stories going back with him in a social way, and she does key in on something so important that Andrew wasn't just about righteous indignation, he was about jocularity and having fun, and she gives some personal stories about hanging out with him and Matt Drudge, uh, going around Los Angeles back when it was fun to be in conservative media, and I love reminiscing about the stuff with Anne. Let's hear it right now. One thing that's really interesting about Anne is I think Anne is one of the few people on the show, regularly on the show, and still a kicking butt in conservative media who knew Andrew Breitbart before I did. Uh, by the way, Anne's got a couple of dates coming up in March in Houston and Indiana. Um, but we've been talking about Andrew over the last couple of days. We're going to talk about him the whole week, 10 years since he passed away. Uh, when did you meet Andrew, and uh, how well did you get to know him before he passed on? I met him with Matt Drudge in L.A. back when he was working for Ariana Huffington. That was the first time I laid eyes on him. And I was sort of surprised Drudge hadn't told me that he had a good friend working for Ariana Huffington. And they, you know, were greeted one another like best buddies. So that was my first encounter. But the other <laughs> one is most of my interactions with him were social interactions. I was always so happy when he was at a party, and he was at a lot of parties, or a bar, or, or we were doing something together, because he was such a raconteur, just hilariously funny, one of the rare people where you just want everyone at the table to shut up so you can listen to him yes. tell hilarious stories. I, I mean, just his entire personality, he was so exuberant and genuinely funny one time we spent together which was i have pictures from it was a lot of fun we were big fans of the tv show 24 and 
he, his father-in-law, Orson Bean. Or- Orson Bean, yeah. Um, and I went and watched them watched them film an episode, which was totally fun. But most of our social interactions were social rather than professional. I was really impressed with him when his when his first book came out. I thought Hollywood Interrupted was unbelievably great. And and and, and, and you know, I grew up in LA and a lot of the stuff in there actually brought to light some of the stuff I was witnessing with some of my peers in, in private school stuff and the private school circuit. It was really well researched and I broke a lot of news. I hate to say this, but I was kind of surprised at what a great book it was. I mean, so many conservative books are just schlock and repeating stuff you already know. This was brand new stuff and just knocked my socks off. He was a genuine journalist, and a lot of what he's best known for is just being a funny guy and giving us the tactics that we use and the hashtag war and kind of making the culture wars fun. Um, But he did do research, too. He did do a lot of journalism, and he genuinely loved to get in the weeds. Uh, It is interesting that you and Andrew and Drudge, I mean, that's a dinner party right there. I think a lot of people would love to go to that one. Yeah, when I first met Drudge, he was was Los Angeles-based. And, and, uh, you know, eventually, obviously, when I first met um, Andrew, it was long before he was working for Drudge. But as the world knows now, soon enough, once the Drudge Report exploded... Um, he started working for the Drudge Report. And it was really just the two of them. It was just the two of them, as far as I know. Of course, Drudge keeps everything pretty pretty cagey. But as far as I know from Andrew, that was when I started with Andrew. What what drew me to Andrew was I was a Drudge Report super fan. I'd seen Andrew's name because Andrew had come up with this brilliant idea that he would uh, call something Breitbart.com and all he would do is he'd, he'd syndicate news wires. And so he looked like he must have had a newsroom of a th- thousands of people in some sort of skyscraper in <laughs> Dusseldorf. And he was really just licensing the AP and the AFP and putting them all up on, on Drudge. So I couldn't believe it. It's just one guy with, with wild hair who uh, you know loved to socialize. And he was all Breitbart.com. It was pretty, pretty amazing for people who can go way back I- in the day. I just remembered one funny thing he told me about when he was the backup man for Drudge. I had been a reader of the Drudge Report when there were like six of us reading it. Um, He was working at, what was it, a CBS gift shop, and he'd pick up things that were thrown away (laughs) in the trash and be reporting lots of like breaking news, not only about Hollywood, which I don't know that much about, but also he seemed to have a lot of interesting offbeat news. So there were a few of us reading the Drudge Report. And then, of course, quite famously, Newsweek wouldn't let Michael Isikoff run his breaking news story on Monica Lewinsky and the Clinton deposition. So someone called it into Drudge. He got the story. He was attacked all over the mainstream media. But of course, the sources he was getting it from, including me, knew it was 100% true. I would love to hear a lesson that you think we have internalized from Andrew that you think is a good thing. And maybe something that Andrew stood for and was all about that you understood because you knew him well, that maybe we haven't quite internalized and we should. It wasn't just the war and fight hard and they are the enemy in the translation it seems it's come across a little more hardcore and not as much fun breitbart he was a lot of fun he everything was said with a wink and a smile and he was so hilarious humor can leaven the most aggressive point um and he was very very good at that so yes war but then a joke 
I was thinking about the title of your book, How to Talk to a Liberal If You Must. People who know you know you love talking to liberals. You talk to liberals all the time. And it's a highly aggressive title. It's also a hilarious title with an obvious tongue-in-cheek element to it that's so provocative and kind of grabs you by the lapels. That's like a perfect example of, of, of what Andrew would do is that Andrew would get your attention with his aggression, but then you realize he was kind of a softie wanting to hang out and have a glass of red wine. Yes, yes, yes. And um, another perhaps lesson from Breitbart that I think conservatives may be taking it seems a bit too far, some, some conservatives sometimes, um, but that is I, one of the things I liked about him was how many people he kept bringing into the fold. Yes. He would find all of these, like, you know, Hollywood people in particular, because that's where he lived, those are the ones he met who were starting to have doubts about the edifice of liberalism mm. and he'd bring them in <laughs> he told me it was like i don't know if you'll remember this story there was a horrible horrible story over in i don't know sweden some norwegian country i think it was where an old man had kept all of these kids in the basement for 20 years and they come they're, they're discovered they come out of the basement they're blinking their eyes they can't get used to the sun and he told me this is what it's like bringing a Hollywood liberal away from liberalism. Yeah. We have to do it slowly, carefully. <laughs> um, but yeah, you I know, think that's great to have this like constant outreach program. On the other hand, it does drive me crazy when conservatives get really excited about our, you know, any connection to a Hollywood person and, oh, we've got to make this person, you know, a spokesman at the convention or... Uh, worship his podcast. He was on Fear Factor. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. As a Fear Factor poll, that is delightful. And Coulter, uh, the, you know what um, you made me think of, which is Andrew, though in his own right, did so much amazing stuff. I know he was proudest of being a talent scout. And if you look at the people who have written for Breitbart past, present, and future, it, it's like the Hall of Fame for the modern conservative movement. You're and right. That it, and, and that's the Andrews credit. But one thing I, I know about you is you relentlessly promote people unselfishly who simply have the right ideas and you don't look for things in return. And I know, you know, the conservative movement has been good to you, but still it's a many people who, who has been very good to aren't like you. They aren't like that where they're not trying to boost for whatever reason. They do like to put people down if they can't claim some sort of credit. And that's. Uh, that's it really is toxic and the left does not do that but it seemed like some days only you and andrew uh, there's a couple others who are okay but it's the it, it was very pu it's pure with you and it was pure with andrew the willingness to promote people just because they deserve it you know that's it that's enough that they're good they're smart thank you i appreciate them. that i i think i do and then the main time i times i notice it is when someone i promoted turns and attacks me for to, get, to get on cnn or something um but yeah no i absolutely do um we do want to get right wingers out there you'll watch the cnn because you're actually you know we'll give the other side a chance and kind of it also it's more entertaining which is um uh oh the, yeah well msnbc joanne reed is of course my favorite show I know. I think is it is it a game that you have a Joy Reid reference in every column, or is that just something I've noticed? Because <laughs> you know, Norm Macdonald used to have to the OJ it. joke in every in every Weekend Update. He used to have an OJ joke every time. <laughs> it's it's almost the same thing. I mean, you you relentlessly remind us that Joy Reid is a big part of our lives, and I, I got to send you the from my from my book Breaking the News. I got to send you the Joy Reid section that I cut because. I had to have written 10 pages, but it was all technically redundant, even though no one is committed to memory all the horrible things Joy Reid has done. Um, so I kind of wanted to browbeat everyone with it, but I ultimately cut oh it, but it was gosh, so that's sad. that's fantastic. 
think you should run as a, as a column in Breitbart. I should. I should. I really have been irresponsible about that. I got to dig that out because it was just one where it didn't, it didn't really make sense to keep it because I wanted the book to be as fresh as possible. But And she keeps failing upwards. All of her shows have done badly and she keeps getting a better show. Yes. Yes. I was um, at, a, at a dinner with a bunch of right wingers this weekend and one of them said, one of them reported that, oh yeah, Joanne Reed losing her show. And I said, she is not. I have read nothing. Um, I've had a house full of guests, but that has not happened. The last employee of MSNBC <laughs> will be Joanne Reed. Everyone else will be fired and gone from the building. And no, it was a false report, of course. Yeah, and, and that was my joke, that it's a, it's a marvel she hasn't been promoted to head of the whole newsroom at this point, given her track record. That's the <laughs> only thing that's surprising. Uh, the, and uh, the, I have um, somewhat limited time, but I wanted to get your take before I let you run, because you are, are also one of the sharpest people on the Supreme Court, uh, because you follow it as closely as anyone. Uh, the, the pick from Biden, Kentanji Brown-Jackson, uh, any thoughts? Um, well, I have not followed this, I should say, on vacation, but of course I think it's outrageous. The identity politics must be a, a black female, same as his vice president, same as half of all appellate court nominees Joe Biden has made. Um, out of 16, eight of them have been black ladies, much like Joy Ann Reed. You're just, you know, constantly seeing white privilege. So, of course, I don't like the identity politics. A lot of Republicans aren't in a very good position to contest it since they were so excited that Amy Coney Barrett was a woman, a woman. I hate when, look, she's fine, but I hate when Republicans play identity politics. We should reject it root and branch. But having said that, of a very, very narrow field, Jackson looks okay and just, you know, we're not going to get somebody we like. I'm not familiar with her rulings. I'll count on, I don't know, Senator Kennedy, probably very pro-criminal, but I don't know that. And she may be much like Kamala Harris, the only person who ended up being actually qualified. And do you think for you, uh, where are your favorite, what, what is your favorite place to be right now? And you don't have to, I'm not saying just to live, but is there any places in America that you're not, you, you don't want to go in places where you do feel like are the great places to hang? You know, it's funny you say that around New Year's, we were looking, planning a vacation. Europe, you know, with all the COVID rules, I didn't want to do homework. I'll wait until we can just go and not produce proof and get a, a vaccine passport, blah, 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 blah. So then we look at America. Um, great country. I love America. There's so <laughs> many places to go and things to see. <laughs> and then you have to, you know, um, superimpose on the map of America and all the places you want to go. What are their COVID rules? And, you know, what's the, what's the temperature? Um, January 1. And uh, so the, the, the end result was there was only one place in the entire country to go to, Florida. That seems to be the answer that is the consensus. It is one of the bright spots of planet Earth at the moment is Florida. Ann Coulter, is always a delight to speak with you. I feel like we could do three hours. Thanks, Ann. Thank you. It's so great to talk to you, Alex. You're the most important person in the conservative movement. Oh, my goodness. That is, that is the most flattering thing I've ever heard. And thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thanks, Ann. <laughs>
Next up, John Andrasik joins us. You know his music, Five for Fighting, which is pretty much ubiquitous. I don't think you go too long before you hear one of his songs. And he and Andrew were deep personal friends. And John is a really charismatic guy, uh, but he's also has a lot of insight into what Andrew is like as a human being. And this is something that I've really tried to elevate this week as we've paid homage to Andrew, who we all learn so many of these tactics in terms of how to fight the culture wars. But also as, as a man, Andrew was just a riot. He was just so fun to be around. And uh, John got to know him as well as uh, just about anyone, I would say, in the latter years of his life. And he gives us the details on what Andrew was like. We talk often about how Andrew was a big tent guy. He would bring in people into the fold in the conservative movement who weren't your traditional horn rim glass wearing, elbow patch wearing, think tank conservatives. It was also people from the art and culture and people who weren't just writing songs about, you know, the Federalist Papers. It was people who were real, <laughs> honest to goodness forces within pop culture. One such person is John Andrasik, who you better know as Five for Fighting, which is how he does all of his music is under Five for Fighting. We are talking about Andrew Breitbart 10 years after he passed away, which is just so stunning for people who know him. It just feels like the, the, the 10 years, it was only yesterday that he was here with us. And the scope of his legacy and what he meant to the individuals who are so prominent, who he empowered. Uh, how did you meet Andrew, John? You know, like so many, it was at a Friends of Abe event. Friends of Abe, as you know, was a kind of underground society of folks in, in Hollywood who uh, were libertarian, conservative, religious conservatives, a wide swath of folks who were just not uh, kind of radical liberals who had no place to go and, and worried about their livelihoods and came to these events and, and kind of was, was able to speak freely. And uh, Andrew was one of the early members. I think I was the first musician. And, uh, you know, as soon as he walked into that room, you know, everything lit up and he became quite a force within FOA, one of our leaders. It, it was just fun to kind of see him kind of find his people, <laughs> people with open minds, yeah. people who were willing to discuss issues. And uh, we became great friends. And uh, you're right. You know, it, it's uh, it's a sad day, but it's also a day where I've pulled up some pictures and some memories and you, you reflect on the great times we had with him. And I, I always say this to you. It's like, God, I wish he was here. I'd just be fascinated to see his impact and opinion on the culture with all we're going through. I know his impact is, is, is patently obvious, but just to get his take on stuff, how priceless would that be? Just to, even at a personal level, and of course it wouldn't be just personal, it would be the whole world would be interested. But I just miss asking him about what he thought of X, Y, or Z news topic because his opinions were often not just creative or unique, but but uh, they're uh, irreverent. Uh, you know, I haven't done a lot of FOA talk on the show Friends of A, which was this huge Hollywood group that had some of the biggest A-listers around who were in it um and andrew somehow made himself one of the most important people in it which is kind of bizarre and probably an amazing story but i thought of you john because andrew wanted to get the next generation of conservatives to not just go into talk radio uh, i'm uh, lightly mocking myself on that and to not just uh, go into the political world but also to go into the arts now you were a person who was already very successful in the arts when you met andrew uh, did it have an effect on your career as you became more publicly right of center? Did it help in some ways? Did it hurt in other ways? It's, it's, it's something I'm very curious about. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I think, you know, there's so many things we miss about Andrew. I think probably the most critical one is the fact that he really was driving the message of politics as downstream of culture. 
he understood that if you want to move the needle, you have to uh, participate in the arts, participate in the conversation. And I think with his passing, we lost that voice. And I still think to this day, the conservative Republican side has very little clue the power of the arts. But yeah, we talked about it all the time. You know, I, I think early in my career, I was writing those messages. I never spoke out that much. But I'll tell you, in the last six months, when I put out blood on my hands, this anti, you know, this protest about Afghanistan, that's when Andrew really started talking to me every day, because I would wake up and I'd say, okay, YouTube just took my song down. What would Andrew do? How would he play yes. this? You know, when I started getting some, you know, pushback from the entertainment media, you know, I would think of Andrew and I think, you know, I have very few problems. And, and not only was, would he fight back, he was just brilliant in how to play the media. As you said, you know, the folks forget, you know, this was the guy who wrote the great headlines for Drudge. I remember I was with him when the plane went down on the Hudson and I saw his brain working and, and someone said, it's, boy, it's a miracle. And within five minutes, Andrew had Miracle on the Hudson on the front page of the Drudge Report. You know, his energy, his joy, his sense of humor, his courage, his brilliance, you know, all of that. I just think we never recognize those incredible traits he had. But of course, what I miss most of his friendship and talking to him about songs and music. Because, as you know, he wasn't really a political guy. He was a life guy. And, and he brought so much joy to every day. Well, it's so amazing because that was absolutely one of his most legendary headlines and you were there. I remember I was there too. I mean, I was probably working. I was probably half distracted at the time. But when Sully Sullenberger landed up playing the Hudson, I remember yeah. he wrote that headline, the Miracle on the Hudson headline, and immediately everyone took it and ran. Maybe this is the first time Andrew's getting credit. I mean, maybe one other time if I, if I really dig. But see, this is the whole fun for me in getting to do this. And forgive me for not being overly somber because it really has been so such a privilege. And we've had a few of these interviews so far, John of really big name people and they all remind me of an amazing Andrew story from how he was directly related to the Anthony Weiner laptop that helped take out Hillary Clinton yeah. and that could be traced directly to Andrew stuff like that that just I'd even forgotten that um, uh, Tucker Carlson brought him to dinner with a uh, terrorist Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn uh, it, like this is an amazing thing that ha and, and I had forgotten about this stuff until we started to talk to people about his legacy but you keyed in on something that I will go a little bit negative and uh, this is something where I do think he'd be maybe a little disappointed I hate channeling him but I think maybe maybe he would be a little disappointed in that the right didn't do quite as much in terms of building cultural infrastructure now Breitbart's been in the culture for the last 10 years Donald Trump of course was the centerpiece of the culture uh, there are conservative musicians and actors who continue to do very well though oddly maybe not as many new ones it seems like people like you people like John Voigt who we all know are, are very outspoken and still work all the time but I do think he would have wanted more people to heed the advice I just laid out where, you know, if you're a right winger, you should, if not go to Hollywood, I mean, become a YouTube star first or whatever it takes these days, even though YouTube will probably kick you off, but at least try. What do you recommend any young musicians or perhaps cultural figures who are listening? No, you're right. I mean, I remember we were sitting at the, the convention back in the day and looking around going, you know, it's just a bunch of old white guys uh, who have no idea who, idea who Led Zeppelin is. And to this day, I still see that. I mean, I could give you examples as we speak of so many in the Republican Party, especially the old establishment, you know, who think their speeches matter. When frankly, yeah. you know what matters? Babylon B moves the needle more than any politician's speech. You know, Blood on My Hands got millions of views without one spin on the radio. 
So I do think there's a glut there. And, and But what, what Andrew really did, he gave us courage. He gave us permission. There was a guy yes. out there taking all the bullets for us. So we're like, boy, well, if he can do that, maybe I could write a song. Maybe I could speak out. But yeah, I mean, in this cancel culture, it's gotten much worse. So yeah, I, I think he would certainly be disappointed. But you know what? With Andrew, he was such a force. Maybe the culture wouldn't be where, where it is so, now so with right. him. Because You're he so exposes. Right. He calls out the hypocrites. But we have to take up that mantle ourselves as a group, you know, in his honor. Listeners of the show will recall our interview from a couple of months ago when you put out Blood on My Hands. Tell me about the song and tell me about Andrew's connection to it. Since we talked, we did a docu-music video kind of speaking about the, the situation in Afghanistan, news clips. I kind of did it with Andrew in mind. I, I didn't use kind of my opinion. I used news clips. I performed in front of the White House with Taliban atrocities, and I had former Vice President Saleh have the last word. And a lot of that kind of came, at least in my mind, from Andrew's thinking, how would he present that? And it was a very impactful video. I'm sure many of your listeners, and you know, YouTube took it down after initially putting it up, and there was a big hubbub, and initially they apologized. But um, yeah, the video is, is all over the place. I put it on Rumble <laughs> in case YouTube takes it down again. And, you know, I think we have to start using these alternative media sites. But yeah, it, you know, it, it's hard right now with Ukraine kind of understandably taking all the energy. But yes, uh, Afghanistan, I'm still working with a lot of the evac orgs trying to get people out. The State Department's still hindering our efforts. You know, Ukraine is a domino from Afghanistan. We talked about it, Alex, when we first, Correct. you know, Correct. when Blood on My Hands came out. If you abandon your citizens uh, to the Taliban, why would Putin think twice of going into Ukraine? And I think China and Taiwan are on, on the horizon. So Afghanistan is playing itself out in many of these geopolitical tragedies, disasters in front of our face. Uh, again, John Andrasik is with me. Five for Fighting. You can go to fiveforfighting.com. Keep up with his music and some of his activism. Oh, are you touring right now, John? Are you out there? Can people go see you? Yeah, we're going to go out in the spring. Uh, quartet tour in the Midwest for the first time in years. We're putting the Five for Fighting rock band on the road, back in the bus. <laughs> and you want to hear Superman, 100 Years, and uh, the Verve Fights, the Freshman. We'll be out all summer. Yeah, that's a great song. Uh, across the nation. So it'll be a lot of fun. Let me ask you about spending time with Andrew, because you got a, to spend a lot of time with him and get to know him as a person, probably more than a lot of the people who you're actually friends, friends, like you guys would hang out like that. That would be yeah. Andrew made everyone his friend. And to a large degree, they were his friends. So I'm not undermining that. But you're someone who you guys used to hang on the weekends. Is there anything about Andrew that really getting to know him well, that you would like to share with people who admire him, but might not have known him as well as you did? He kind of understandably has his reputation of this fighter and being belligerent and but he was so kind and he was compassionate. And people that even were his political adversaries had to like Andrew if they had any soul because he had no malice in him. He was also funny as hell. And he was a human being like the rest of us. And he enjoyed being Andrew Breitbart. <laughs> That's one of the saddest things about his passing. He enjoyed it. I remember we were at a LA Kings hockey game and I could tell the folks sitting in front of us kind of were aware we were sitting behind them. and. And one of them turned around and said, you know, excuse me, could I have your autograph? And I started reaching for my pen. He said, oh, no, not you, Mr. Breitbart. And we started laughing and it was funny. <laughs> and, and Andrew really enjoyed that. It was kind of when Big Hollywood was starting. And to kind of see his celebrity grow was just so fun. And, but he always took it with a grain of salt, too. He, he was not a narcissist. You know, he, he was just Andrew. And again, a great friend. 
would call you, speak to you for two hours about any problems you had. We would share, you know, stories about our families, but really a kind soul. And uh, I know the media has tried to put him in a different light, but I think anybody who met him would come away going, I may not agree with that guy and everything, but I like him. Do you have a favorite Andrew news story, John? This will be the last one for today. Was there anyone where he did something personally in the news that you thought, I can't believe this guy's my buddy? Well, of course, everybody's going to say it. But, you know, if we're lucky enough, we have our Kirk Gibson moment. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. But the Wiener thing was just hilarious. I remember yeah, I was too. talking That's to him too. at the hotel. And he's mm-hmm. like, um, he goes, I'm going to go down to the Wiener press conference. So I'm like, okay, you know, maybe you'll get a question <laughs> in. And then, you know, half hour later, I flipped on the TV and there's Andrew doing a press conference for Wiener taking questions, basically calling out the hypocrisy of the media. And I swear, I don't think I'd ever was so proud and laughed so hard. Certainly for me, that's a moment that will history will never forget. Mine too, and I got to know him better than almost anyone, uh, and I feel like at least, and I have to say that that had to have been it. I mean, it was the best, absolute best. John Andrasic, five for fighting. John, always a pleasure to speak with you, and I really am grateful you participated in this. Alex, thanks for having me. Andrew, we love you. And Alex, uh, I appreciate you doing this today. I, I know it's, um, it's wonderful and difficult and all those things. So uh, God bless you, Andrew, Susie, Orson, and all of the Breitbarts. Thanks, John. Last guest of our three guest show today is two-time Miss Olympia, Erin Stern. We plucked Erin off of our social media page where she is a frequent commenter, particularly on our Instagram. And the fitness world is really big on Instagram. And it's fun to see people to have a crossover audience where people who have their own tribe, uh, where we can bring them over and kind of sort of cross-pollinate. I think it's really important and fun to do. And I gotta say, this was really fun for me, who does uh, take somewhat of an interest in health and fitness as we all should. She's got a lot of insight and just a nice gal. All that right now. Erin, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. And it's an honor to be on your show. It's really kind of you. And the the first most important question I have to ask is, will you train me? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Good. Okay, good. So, so, so we'll, we'll connect on that offline. So uh, it's the, I was thinking about the idea of um, fitness being a professional fitness person and how it really just is, it's a conservative pursuit. It is about personal responsibility. Uh, it's about not being in denial of reality. Uh, but is this how it is in the pro fitness world? Do you find that it kind of caters more towards people who are right of center or maybe not? Maybe it's just another one of those culture things where the left has taken it. Well, I think that, that people in general tend to be more on the conservative side with bodybuilding. But um, fortunately, we don't talk too much politics in bodybuilding. So we, we keep it simple as far as just the meals and training. Yeah, which is prob- probably the makes for a, l- a little better lifestyle than uh, mine, which is quite stressful sometimes in yeah. when it comes to the fighting, f- fighting with people politically. Uh, but, but when did you decide that you or was it a decision? Was it a conscious decision that even though you're well known in your field, you're at the top of your field, that you're still not going to hide uh, your political viewpoints that, you know, if Breitbart posts something on social media, you'll comment on it and it's the, you'll get attention um, on yourself for having those viewpoints because you have the verified, you have verified profile, which means it goes right to the top, sticks to the top. So people, it's not a secret. And was that a conscious decision or is it just something that you feel like you're just doing, you're just being yourself? 
I feel very strongly about this, and I feel that a lot of people are not speaking out because they fear cancel culture. And of course I do, because a lot of my business is done online and it's done through social media. But I feel that if we, we don't speak out, it's going to continue on this uh, uh, along the path of craziness. And, and um, because I am a little bit more moderate in my viewpoint, um, I, I just want to speak up for those who perhaps are also afraid to speak up. I love that. And this is one of the things that I find consistently as people come up to me and they tell me that they're not, you know, right wing bomb throwers and they still like our content. And I say, exactly. That's the point is that we don't want to be alienating to people. Um, but the media tries to portray us one way, which is just not not accurate. But people fall for it. And this is uh, the reason why they fall, they fall for it, I think, is because a lot of people don't do what you do, which is just just be yourself. I think if more people were vocal and outspoken, we would have a much more balanced and I think a more cordial debate um, in terms of just nationally the way we talk to one another. But that's not the way it is. It seems like we all have to get sign up for a tribe and we're either in X tribe or Y tribe and that's it. I think so. And, and people love labels and they love to categorize others. And I, I feel that if we were to sit down and, and talk um, to, to people on the more left side of things that we would find, we have more in common than we than not. And unfortunately, it's, you know, shouting and it's shouting, I think, from the um, vocal minority. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, because I, I think that everyone deserves to have a voice. It's just uh, a little bit uh, tipped, <laughs> the skills are tipped a little bit at this point. So uh, talk to me about your, uh, your relationship with social media right now, because you're big on social media, uh, um, particularly on Instagram, it appears, uh, though I have not checked out your Facebook, which I assume you have, but you've got a, a really big Instagram account and you've got a big Twitter account too. Uh, it, for me, I find that there's a lot of the fitness world is on social media. I think you kind of have to be for advertising, but there is a lot of noise also. And I follow a few fitness accounts and I, I got to be honest with you. I have no idea if the people have any idea what they're talking about because I'm not uh, deeply knowledgeable of that stuff it is the, how do you navigate this world and make sure that you're distinguishing yourself from the just countless other people who are out there, uh, preaching that they're the ones who have the key to, the, the keys to health and fitness? Well, I think it, simply, uh, I, there are many keys to fitness. So it's about finding something that works for you. Uh, my methods are science-based, but I, I never want to put anyone else's methods down. I just hope to show people ways in which that they can get healthy and eat better and simplify it because uh, a lot of the fitness professionals use jargon and terminology that does go over uh, most people's heads that are not in the fitness industry. So I just try to help others and uh, do good. How did the lockdowns and the coronavirus affect the fitness world and affect you personally? Because uh, obviously in an ideal world, everyone can get to the gym and have as much time as they need. But when the gyms are shut down and some of the gyms are just so absurd, I know my dad who is a really into into fitness for example that he got kicked out of his gym because he wouldn't do his cardio and his mask um and in fact he, he he didn't get kicked out he quit because he's getting harassed too much about his mask so he had the, so i mean it just really changed the the playing field 
It did. And luckily, my business is online. Um, however, I did have to add home workouts. So now I offer home and gym workouts. And a lot of people did leave the gym when COVID hit and they continue to train at home. So it has changed the atmosphere quite a bit. And uh, luckily for me, I'm, I'm in Florida. So our lockdown was ah. very short. Yeah. So we've, we've actually enjoyed a, a good amount of freedom here. When did you decide that you wanted to not just be in great shape, but also be competitive with it and to be Miss Olympia? I mean, that is a level of precision with you know, every uh, portion of your body. I mean, it's just amazing the, that level of precision. Have you always been that competitive? When did you decide you wanted to really pursue that? Well, I was competitive in high school. I, I, I rode horses. I rode equestrian competitively. And then I went to college and actually got a scholarship to run track and fields. And I started as a walk-on. So um, I've always had a drive. Um, however, and I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but however, I, I hit a rough spot after college and I, I lost my way. And uh, bodybuilding actually saved my life. So Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I had hit rock bottom in, in every aspect, in every way that you could gauge success. I, I had just failed, and the gym was the only thing I had left, and um, winning my pro card and, and ultimately winning Olympia, it, it was the, the, the door that had sort of cracked open, and I, I just took advantage of it because I didn't have anything else. Uh, it, it, that's a great it's a great story, but there is a level beyond that you really enjoyed and you got a lot of catharsis and motivation from going to the gym and becoming literally the greatest in the world at it. That, that is, I mean, I, I get a lot of, uh, it feels good to me when I go to the driving range, but I'm not, uh, you know, trying to qualify for, for the U S open. So is it, that is another, that's a next level thing. How much focus imprecision does it take because I don't think we can really fathom it when it comes to your nutrition your workouts uh, the, the amount of monitoring of your body that you have to do uh, can you share for us a little bit of maybe a difference between people who are just really in, like the gym and go to the gym regularly and to compete at that level well it's the difference between let's say someone getting it 95 percent of the, the way correct and and training at that level is is 100 percent of the way so there's no room for error. Um, it's eat, sleep, train. And in the, the times when I wasn't training, I was working on neuroplasticity. I was working on trying to root out potentially inflammatory foods. Um, it, it was just, to me, a, a science experiment that I was performing as I went. Wow. And it, it just, it consumed my life. And, and to get to that level, it's, you know, they, they talk about balance and how to get in shape and stay in shape. You need balance. It needs to be sustainable. And, and competing is absolutely not sustainable. But thankfully, it's finite, right? You have your show date. And then when the show is over, you do have some time to um, get back to normal and, and get back to hobbies and, and talking to people again. <laughs> Uh, Aaron Stern is with me, two-time Miss Olympia, and you can go to AaronStern.com. She's also big all over social media, and uh, it, it is someone who's active on Breitbart's social media pages, which is where I, I'm, I'm uh, Aaron, I'm, I'm doing this where I'm making sure to note 
uh, the big shots who comment and uh, who participate in our social media. I'm reaching out to them because there's a lot of cool people who do that. And um, we're very grateful for that because it does help us grow a lot. So thank you for that. Uh, Can you give us a couple of things? Because you do know this is a science experiment and you're so right on the money about this. There was a great headline. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a month or two ago about how it actually fitness in and losing weight and losing fat is actually uh, it actually is harder than rocket science. It's a and it, that makes sense because we're all we've never had more information and we've never had more access to good foods and the gym. And yet it seems like our health deteriorates every year. And so what are some examples of um, what are some examples of things that you think are of fundamental mistakes that people are making and just a couple of things for people in the audience that they should take to their personal life if they want to start being a little healthier? I, I think just understanding the, the basic laws of thermodynamics. So if you want to lose weight, you eat less than what you burn and that it does not matter what kind of diet you're on. So if you want to do keto, if you want to do high carb, um, whatever type of diet you want to do. If you want to eat nothing but McDonald's, you can do it as long as you're eating in a caloric deficit, as it's called. So um, my recommendation would be to get more protein, get more whole food sourced protein, and get your steps in. So it's not even about working out. It's just about increasing activity levels and decreasing food intake. That's it. Do you think it's easier or more difficult to lose weight when you're in a really intense workout uh, rhythm? Because I think I find, and this is anecdotal, sometimes I find for me when I'm working out intensely then I'm just I'm eating more and then even though I'm building muscle, I'm not necessarily losing weight. Is that common? Is that what you find? It can be the case. So a lot of times when you're working out hard, your uh, appetite is increased, but it's very important to increase levels of hydration and make sure you're sleeping well and also not rely too much on wearables to, uh, let's say if you're training and your Garmin or whatever wearable you're, you're using says that you burned 800 calories, well, they can be off by as much as 60%. So you may have only burned 300 calories. So a lot wow. of yeah, so a lot of people will think that they've burned a massive amount of calories and then they'll compensate by eating something that they maybe shouldn't have. Um, so it's, it's That's incredible out. because I'll do, I'll, I'll do my bike sometimes and it'll tell me I burned 600 calories, but you're saying maybe it was only like 250 calories. So then when I go, you know, have a, have a couple of beers afterwards, like I've offset it completely. Yes, it could be the case. And, and maybe you burn closer to 400 calories, but I, wow. I think it comes down to tracking and, and understanding your intake and, and making sure that you know how much food you're taking in and that way you can adjust as, as needed. Okay, so give me an exercise that people do that you think is really not productive. I'm, I'm hoping you say burpees, but maybe you won't. So we're looking for inefficient exercises to burn yes. calories, and, and that would include burpees, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> they're great for burning, <laughs> and usually the exercises that you don't want to do are the ones that are the most effective, but um, I will say that squats are probably the one exercise where people believe they, they have to squat, or if they want great legs or great glutes, that they must do that exercise, and it's absolutely not the case, so uh, that and deadlifts. 
Um, when it comes to food, and I, I think that now the science is really pointing towards just the, the simple calorie deficit is is the key here. And however you get that, however you achieve that is, is the goal. But are there any food mistakes that you see consistently that you think you want to point out to the audience that people make? I think not tracking is a big mistake because people, especially when they're starting on a fitness journey, they will sometimes forget snacks or they'll overindulge. And so it really helps at least for the first few weeks to to have a good idea as to what you're taking in. And again, you can make adjustments based on that. But if you don't have an idea, then it's going to be nearly impossible to fix any mistakes that you might be making. Yeah, that that accountability is why I think there's a parallel between I think some conservative political views and um and 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 health and nutrition because I was thinking about this like for for Lent this year I'm giving up uh, uh, eating between meals because I think I got the young kids around they got yummy stuff they don't eat all of it and it's just so easy to just like grab a bite of this and a bite of that and then before you know it you whatever deficit you would have had it's just completely erased and you don't even remember what you ate Aaron. Absolutely. So it comes down to that. And it also comes down to the the Monday through Friday versus weekend mentality. So it's very possible that someone can do very well during the week, but on Friday night or Saturday, one meal can actually wipe out that deficit too. Wow. So uh, I want to talk about the coronavirus. I guess this will be the last thing for today, and I'd love to have you back because I would love to do more of this. But the, the, I want to talk about the coronavirus a little bit. And um, a lot of people put on, on weight. We, we joke in the Marlowe household that the, the people put on the COVID-19. Um, and it is, it, it's bleak when you have that sort of a setback. And then sometimes, I mean, the, the gyms, so for certain parts of the country are still not uh, places of freedom. I know where you are in Florida, obviously, is a little better. Uh, how do you get people off the couch, get them to start getting motivated? Where do you start? Where do you think is a good place for people who are at home who are thinking, boy, I got to start uh, reconciling? Because there are people listening to this conversation thinking I need to start being honest with myself about where, the way I've been treating my body. Uh, where do you start? I think it's best to set objective goals versus having the goal to just lose weight because that's a goal that's based in self-judgment. And then working out becomes almost a punishment. Um, and, and also working out, lifting weights is not necessary. I'm a fan of it because it's going to increase muscle mass and increase metabolism. But if someone just gets off the couch and makes healthier choices, so nothing crazy, um, they get more activity in. Uh, maybe they make a goal to run a 5K or um walk a certain distance or even be able to carry all of their groceries in at once. It doesn't have to be any major goal, um, but just something that gets them moving and then they'll see progress and then they'll want to make changes as they go. Aaron Stern, two-time Miss Olympia and a, a participant on Breitbart News social media pages, which uh, really delights us every time you chip in, Aaron. Uh, can we do this again? Will you come back? Absolutely. And I love your social media accounts and and your content. And it's such an honor to speak with you, Alex. That's really nice of you to say that. AaronStern.com. And uh, she's available for hire. And I highly recommend it at AaronFast on Twitter. And she's got a more complicated uh, Instagram page. But if you use your favorite non-Google search engine, you can find her. And she can coach you, too. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Alex. I got American 
That's all for today's show. Thanks a lot to producers Haley and Greg Eben for making the show possible. And all of you who've told 10,000 friends and family members about Breitbart News, picked up breaking the news, and done everything you can to support what we're all about. Whatever it is, I'm grateful for it, and it's helping us get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's been an amazing week getting to hear from so many of you and from so many of our guests about what role Breitbart.com and Andrew Breitbart play in their life. It's something I really treasure, and these have been great shows. So I highly encourage you to listen back to the shows from this week because they're important ones and we're just not going to have this moment again 10 years since Andrew passed away and we continue to try our best to uphold his incredible legacy. All right, that's it for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.